The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It just made me realize that as a child that, you know, killers among us, like you have no idea who anybody is and what anybody can do. And there was nothing so scary to me. And I think that's where my fascination with true crime started because I just can't, and I still can't ever successfully get my head around what causes people to do such horrible things. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I am once again far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. You know, last week was really a tease, guys. I know, because now we're just back to distance recording, and it's going to be like that for at least probably two months. I know. It's really sad. At least we got one in. It felt real good. And it was really fun. It was really fun. I miss you already. I know. I miss you, too. We, got, we had some burgers. We had some drinks. It's like everything that you need. And I'm going to hold on to that for months until you guys get back. It's all we have left. Our memories. It is. It is. Billy, what day is it today? It's National Pierce Your Ears Day. And. What? Maybe before you say something, because I'm older, I'm going to go first. Because I know <laughs> what you guys are going to say. But I remember when I turned 15 for my birthday, my mother like gave me a box and I opened it up and it was an earring. And she said, I will let you pierce your ear. And I pierced my ear and it was glorious. And then I got another one too. How long and did you keep in your earring for? Probably six or seven years, probably. No, no, five or six years. Yeah. Something like what that. was the earring that she gave you? Was it a dangle? Uh, it was just, a, it was just a stud. You know? okay. Was so it like a pirate? Was it like a pirate? Was it a pirate hoop? It was not. But I'm then thinking I, of like a dangly, like I don't like know, a feather, cross, but wait, something wait, wait, like a feather. Jack, feather? you have no idea how right you were right there because eventually, once you know, because you have to keep the stud in for a while, right? Yeah, what is it, two months or something, and then and my mom's like, you got to clean it, blah blah blah. I was really good about that; didn't get infected. And then I actually got the got the hoops. I put the hoops in, and then I did put a cross in the hoop. Mm, see, so I know I you so well. Cross. I know yeah. you so well. That's such a random thing, and I just knew it. Nailed it. Nailed it. But you guys, you guys recently had your ears pierced. Yeah, mine's still fucking healing. This is—it's been six goddamn months. Mine, mine's healed, but I don't want to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> I still sleep with my – I bought a, a pillow with a hole in it, and it has been a game changer. It's my whole pillow. It looks sexual. It's very weird. But for anybody that has gotten <laughs> their ears pierced that likes to sleep on the side of their head with the earring in it, this is a game changer. Go get one. Or anybody that's lonely. Or anybody that's lonely. It Really, you can, you can double dip, I guess, or whatever you would do with that pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, all right. Well, you know, that's enough of that. Let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you.
There's no denying that there's something about being close to home that makes us just feel safer. This perceived safety that's padded in familiarity. They are streets, you know. They are pockets of places to hide. But you know, many surveys have revealed that the most car accidents happen within five minutes or less of the driver's home. And you know why this is? Even though we grow to learn our neighborhoods like the backs of our hands, it's because our guards are down. There's an arrogance we embody when we're close to our perceived safety zones. And you know what happens when we let our guards down? Those who want to harm us zero in on the right opportunity to strike. So today's case takes us back to July 23rd of 1995. Songs Waterfalls by TLC and Stay With Me by Notorious B.I.G. were topping the charts and the movie Waterworld was in theaters. The setting for today's case is Somerville, which is located just two miles north of Boston. And here's our first degree, Crystal, who's going to tell you all about Somerville. You obviously have heard of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where MIT and all that is. So Somerville is adjacent to Cambridge. Um, My mother grew up in Cambridge, in in, uh, East Cambridge, and it's essentially right on the border of Somerville. So back then it was a little bit more separate. Now Somerville and Cambridge are like two peas in a pod. Somerville thinks it's Cambridge, essentially, and they take on all of the political standings that Cambridge does. This area we lived in in Somerville is called Prospect Hill. There's a huge tower. It's like a historical landmark at the top of Prospect Hill. It's the first place the colonial revolutionary war people like flew the flag against the British. So it's it's a nice area. Somerville has some yuckier areas, but this one particularly is full of like really huge Victorian houses, colonial houses. We lived in a, a historical home. So like Basically, we couldn't paint our house or do any sort of things to our house until we got permission from like a historical society. Based on how Crystal described growing up in this beautiful historic neighborhood, it seems to be very reminiscent of the 90s. So there was actually a a good culture there. And we knew the neighbors, the Prospect Hill Tower. It was beautiful. You could go all the way up to the top of it and see the cityscape of Boston. And it was gorgeous. But it was this public landmark. So every summer, the neighbors would organize events. There was um, a barbecue every year where people would get together and pretty much just renovate the tower. I remember they would give us a paintbrush and we would paint the big iron door. I just remember painting the wrought iron fence with my sister getting paint all over us. We would plant flowers and shrubs and put in benches. And this was a neighborhood effort. I babysat for a lot of the neighbors who had kids and they, you know, I just remember You know when you're little and they would give you those things where you had to go and sell candy bars or sell calendars or whatever? I just felt so comfortable going around and knocking on my neighbor's doors. I remember getting the most candy bars sold one year just because of how great the neighbors were and how receptive everybody was to just knock on your door. Again, back in the 90s, we were all so naive. But um, that was the climate of the neighborhood, at least before this happened. Um, Things changed after. The summers in this neighborhood sound kind of like that movie Now and Then. You know that movie. 
Gangs of neighborhood kids riding around on their bikes, getting into water balloon fights. The parents all know each other. They all know each other's kids and raise them with a sort of it-takes-a-village mentality. In this neighborhood, there were a lot of kids, and there were two families that lived right down the street from Crystal and right across the street from one another. And this is the O'Briens and the Downings. So the O'Briens lived on the street perpendicular to Crystal's house, and there were three generations of O'Briens that were living under one roof. There was grandfather Tommy O'Brien. He was retired, but had formerly been the Somerville police chief from 1958 to 1980. And everyone in town knew who he was. He was super well-respected and really well-liked. And then there was Big Eddie, or Ed Sr., and he was Tommy's son. And then there was 15-year-old Eddie Jr. and his four sisters. And across the street from the O'Briens lived the Downing family. On the property we were, it was a corner property. So there was um, three streets that went around our our, uh, big Victorian house that we lived in. And we were in the corner of it. Janet lived right across the street from them. So Janet was kitty corner to us and um, he was on our side of the street. She had twin sons and they were a year and a half older than me. The Downing family consisted of 42-year-old mom, Janet Downing. Now, Janet had married her high school sweetheart, Paul, but they went their separate ways seven years prior. So she was a single mom, and she was living there with her 18-year-old daughter, Erin, and her twin 16-year-old sons, Ryan and Paul. The Downing home was a colonial, and it had been converted into a duplex. Janet owned the house, and she and her family lived in one half of this duplex, and they rented out the other half to a tenant. Janet was extremely petite. She was no taller than 5'3", and she worked as a medical assistant at the nearby Medford Health Center. Janet's son, Paul, was best friends with one of the sisters in the O'Brien clan across the street. And her son, Ryan, was best friends with Eddie O'Brien across the street. They were all part of this large group of high school-aged boys who lived in this Prospect Hill neighborhood in Somerville. The Downing home was a frequent gathering spot for the boys, and all the boys liked Janet Downing. She was the kind of mom who would make snacks for everyone, and who let kids hang out in her living room and play Sega Genesis. Eddie was far bigger than men in general, let alone a 15-year-old, so he was very intimidating. So I never really interacted with Eddie. Remember, he was six foot four, 300 pounds. So I was aware of him. He was around. We had these neighborhood events, but I wasn't on the level where I was interacting with him because he was one of the older boys. His group of friends were prevalent around the neighborhood. He hung out with Janet's twin sons constantly. They were always together, dribbling basketballs around and another boy named Marco, who was our paper boy, actually. And then some of the other kids who were in and around the other streets that that surrounded our property. So I was very familiar with that group of friends. Um, and I remember seeing Eddie uh, sometimes on my own and him on his own. And he always just intimidated me because of his size. I probably would have mistaken him for an adult because he was so big at the time. For a portion of that summer in 1995, Crystal's parents sent her to sleepaway camp. And on the evening of July 23rd, her parents drove to pick her up. I was 
away at sleepaway camp and it was the end and it was the last day and it was towards the end of the day and my parents had picked me up and we were in the car for two hours driving home and you know I, I think I had my my Sony Walkman on and just listening to my 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 Lord knows what my Janet Jackson or whatever it was back then and it was at night by the time we had gotten home and as we were driving into our neighborhood and we turned on the street preceding our street, there was just a flood of emergency vehicles. And this was the night that it happened. And I just remember sitting up in the in the minivan going, what happened? What's going on? And this wasn't just like one or two cop cars. There were so many emergency vehicles around. There was, you know, fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, just lights, lights, lights. And then not to mention there was a swarm of bystanders and people. It was, it was impossible for us to get around. What in the holy hell was going on? Well, a crime had been committed. One that would not only devastate the neighborhood, but one that would create a permanent divide as well. So here's how events unfolded that day. It was before 10 p.m. on Sunday evening. The heat and mugginess was still lingering in the air when 16-year-old Ryan Downing was returning home from hanging out with some of his friends in the neighborhood. He had his rollerblades with him as he walked up the steps to his house and through the front door. As he entered, he heard the faint sound of water running from the bathroom sink at the end of the hallway directly in front of him. That's odd, he thinks to himself. His eyes moved towards the entrance to the dining room. There was a table which was draped with a white lace tablecloth. And then his eyes moved to the floor, which is where he noticed something out of place. His brain couldn't immediately process what it was that he was seeing. It looked like a limp, motionless figure, but it couldn't possibly be, could it? Ryan moved closer as the horror of what he was seeing was becoming more and more clear. On the floor was the body of his mother, Janet. She was completely still. Ryan rushed to his mother's side and kneeled down next to her. He touched her shoulder, but she didn't move. He screamed for help. Ryan then bolted from his house and ran directly across the street to the O'Brien house. And remember, Ryan's best friend, Eddie, was the grandson of the former Somerville police chief, so... Honestly, there's no better place to run if you're in the midst of an emergency. And Eddie Jr.'s father, Big Ed Sr., was sitting on the porch as Ryan approached out of breath and completely frantic. Ryan screamed for somebody to call 911. The Somerville police responded within minutes. Somerville police officer Joseph Blair approached the Downings home at 71 Boston Street, and Big Ed Sr. and another neighbor met the police officer outside. 16-year-old Ryan Downing, who had discovered his mother's seemingly lifeless body inside the home, was sitting on the front steps sobbing into his hands. Officer Blair entered the home. He looked into the dining room, and he saw Janet lying on the floor. Next to her also lay the family's golden retriever. The dog stood up, walked over to the officer, grabbed the officer's hand with his mouth, and led him over to Janet as if asking Officer Blair to help his hurt owner. Officer Blair checked Janet's neck for a pulse, and as he tried to touch her neck, he felt a gaping wound. Inside the house, everything else appeared normal. There were still grocery bags on the kitchen counter, as if Janet had just gotten home. And paramedics arrived shortly after, and they worked to save Janet. After about 10 minutes working on her in the house, she was transported to the hospital. But when she arrived at the hospital, Janet was declared dead.
And I just remember we heard that Janet had been brutally murdered and found in her living room and just a pool of blood. And it was one of those things where you can remember a before and after in your childhood. And I just remember after that, I, I couldn't believe that such a brutal, gruesome thing could happen at my home, like where, where we lived and what kind of boogeyman could have come in and done this to her. My mother went to school with Janet Downing in East Cambridge. They lived in the same complex and they went to the same school. So she knew her from then. And she said that Janet was a very nice girl. She kept to herself. She was really quiet. And she, you know, obviously was devastated when this happened because she definitely had fond memories of them as a child. And just knowing that my mother knew her and at that time not knowing who could have done this, it was just terrifying. It was, what do you mean somebody murdered her? What do you mean? And just as a kid, I remember that there was kind of a piece of innocence that was robbed from me that day, just being so close. I'd never known anything like this to happen. Maybe I was sheltered, but at that point it was there was no sheltering us from that. It, it, it was what happened and it was what happened right there. Police spoke to the man who lived on the other side of Janet Downing's duplex, and his name was Barry Reckley, and he said that he heard some commotion next door, but nothing out of the ordinary. He noted that because there were three teenagers living there with lots of friends around all the time, coupled with the fact that the family had a big dog, the noises didn't alarm him or seem unusual. Who would want to murder Janet Downing, and why? Janet was described by those who knew her as calm, serene, friendly, and completely without enemies. She had lived at this house on Boston Street for 11 years. She was very close and loving towards her neighbors and their children. She was the last person anyone in the area would believe that something like this could happen to. Janet's best friend was named Jean McGurley, and she lived only a few doors down from the Downings, and she was beside herself with grief. The two friends had spoken earlier that same day and had made a coffee date. Neighbors told police that Janet had four children total. She had three teenagers, and she had an oldest child who was 22 years old who had moved out and was at college. And like we said before, Janet had married her high school sweetheart, Paul, but they had separated about seven years ago. So Janet lived alone with the kids, but she always felt safe. And she felt supported because of the close bonds that she had with her neighbors. And after divorcing Paul, Janet and her ex-husband were friendly, and then they actually became friends after a few years had passed. As investigators probed to learn the broad strokes of Janet's life, terrified neighbors gathered outside and watched as other detectives and CSI responders cordoned off the property with crime scene tape. Detectives examined the front door of the home a back door to the basement, and a side door, which police said may have been used by the perpetrator to escape. Even more gruesome, there was a trail of blood that led down Hamilton Street, which was the narrow road that ran behind the Downing home. Shortly after the discovery of Janet's body, her ex-husband, Paul Downing, drove from his Wilmington, Massachusetts home where he lived with his new wife and arrived at Janet's house to comfort his distraught children. To say that people were dumbfounded over this crime would be an understatement. Janet didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She never even had so much as a conflict with a neighbor 
or the parent of one of her children's friends. Janet never even fought with her own children. They were extremely close. This is seriously the last person this should have happened to, according to every single person in the neighborhood. The Somerville police, they're scratching their heads. And they hadn't even had a chance to wrap their minds around what had happened to Janet when they received a call about a second violent incident that had occurred right down the street. Eddie O'Brien Jr. had called 911 from the Midnight Convenience Store up the street. And Midnight was a convenience store, but it also sold pornography from a separate room inside the store. And Eddie told the dispatcher that he'd been mugged at knife point. He had been slashed. And after the assault, he made his way to the store to call police. And Eddie actually worked part-time at the store, so he knew it would be open and that it would be a place for him to take refuge as he waited for help. Eddie was rushed to the hospital where his father and police officers arrived to speak with him and make sure that he was all right. And naturally, as police are dealing with these two violent assaults that occurred within blocks of one another, they're going to wonder about whether they're connected or not. Once the police arrived to speak with Eddie, they learned from him that he'd been mugged by two men. He said one was black and one was Hispanic. Eddie spoke to the officers as his wounds were being treated and he had a laceration on his arm and scrapes all over his legs. Luckily, Eddie hadn't been severely hurt, although his cuts were severe enough to need stitches. And remember, this is a 15-year-old kid who stood at a whopping 6'4", 260 pounds. He was unusually large for 15-year-olds. And as Eddie told the police officers his story, he remained calm. He was rational. He was collected. And after his wounds were treated, the police took some of his blood, his stained clothes, as evidence. A nurse at the hospital also took swabs of the blood evidence on his clothing. They also took photos of Eddie and his injuries. Remember, the brutal murder of Janet Downing, Eddie's best friend's mom, had been discovered only minutes before Eddie's call to police to report the mugging. So there's incredible chaos in this evening in general. And a theory is beginning to emerge. Police wondered, did the person or persons who killed Janet Downing escape on foot after the murder, encounter Eddie, and then attack him before fleeing the area? The police didn't know, but they weren't taking any chances. After Eddie was all patched up, he, his father, and the officers who interviewed him drove over to the Union Square area, and he showed officers where the attack took place. And Eddie walked them through his evening. He said that he had gone to Burger King at around 7.30 or 8, and then as he walked towards Union Square, these two men robbed him. One of the men lunged at him with a knife, cutting his hand. And after he walked the officers through the area where this attack had taken place, Big Ed Sr. and Eddie Jr. went home, returning to the street that was flooded with emergency vehicles and officers who were trying to make sense of Janet Downing's homicide. And as the Downing home was processed, one thing was clear. The five foot two Janet had clearly fought for her life, and she had left a trail of blood to prove it. Based on the physical evidence, it was clear that Janet, while being stabbed, had made it to the front door where her blood was smeared. She tried to escape halfway down the stairs before she was dragged back downstairs into a dining room where she succumbed to her injuries. In the den, an ottoman had been overturned. In the front foyer, there were numerous blood stains on the carpets, the staircase, the baseboard, and the stucco wall. On the third step of the staircase, there was a small piece of metal similar to the hilt of a knife which at a glance meant that Janet was attacked so brutally that the knife used to kill her snapped apart during the attack. There were drops of blood near the bathroom and bloody fingerprints on the door near the doorknob. 
So did these prints belong to Janet herself or the person who had taken her life? They would need to be tested to find out. And there was blood on the front door casing and on the back sides of two pictures that appeared to have fallen from the wall. In the dining room, there was a large blood stain on the floor where Janet's body was found. And there were blood spatters on the walls and blood streams on the door casings. In the kitchen, there were drops of blood on the floor, on the refrigerator, and on the doorknob of the door leading to the cellar. There were also blood stains on clothing hanging on a clothesline, and behind the clothesline was a door leading to the backyard. So here's what we've got. We've got some investigators were processing the crime scene on Boston Street. Others were searching for clues in Union Square where Eddie Jr. was attacked. And then at the morgue, an autopsy was being conducted on Janet. And the findings were truly disturbing. Janet Downing sustained 66 stab wounds and 32 incised wounds, length greater than width. There were numerous stab and incised wounds to her neck and small puncture wounds under her chin. Her upper right lung had seven stab wounds, which corresponded to only two exterior wounds. And that's important because that signified that a knife had been thrust into the two exterior wounds more than once. There was one stab wound to her lower left lung and two to her liver. One stab was delivered with such force that it cut her second left rib in two. There were two defensive wounds on her left hand and arm. As for the cause of death, it was determined to be loss of blood due to multiple stab wounds, most significantly to the lungs and liver. But there was something else. There was another strange characteristic of Janet's attack. It was that Janet's bra had numerous stab cuts into the cups of the bra, which was odd because there were no actually stab wounds to her breasts. When Janet was found, her bra was not on her and clasped correctly. It was sort of draped over her chest. And that suggested that her killer removed the bra and actually stabbed it multiple times and then placed it back onto her body sort of haphazardly. Also, Janet had numerous defensive wounds, the broken rib, and a punctured lung. She was stabbed 98 times. 98 times. I mean, her stab wounds had stab wounds. They could not determine right away, even that's why it took them so long to to come out with that. But it was just, it was horrific. I mean, here I was at summer camp, sitting around the campfire. We're telling each other ghost stories. And then I come home to like this real life horror story. Investigators needed to know everything about Janet, from what she had done that day to any relationships the single mom may have been engaged in. The police had no idea whether their suspect was a stranger or someone who knew Janet intimately. However, the fact that she was stabbed and the fact that she'd been stabbed countless times suggested that perhaps there was a level of intimacy here. Meanwhile, the search for the two suspects who had robbed, mugged, and assaulted Eddie Jr. also continued. Officers were still searching for evidence around Union Square where the mugging had allegedly taken place, but they couldn't find anything. There were no signs of a struggle. There were no blood spots. Nothing. Now, remember, 
Eddie is the grandson of the former Somerville police chief. So it's not like anyone really doubted his story. But the pieces at this point weren't really fitting together. So the detectives asked Eddie Jr. to come to the police station to go over the details of experience one more time. Right. And it was now about 1.15 in the morning on July 24th, which is the same night that Janet had been killed. And when Eddie and his father, Big Ed, arrived, one of the police officers advised Eddie Jr. of his Miranda rights. And Eddie wasn't worried, and he obviously had nothing to hide. So with his father, they signed a juvenile Miranda warning waiver form so Eddie could voluntarily repeat his statement. He poured over his account of the robbery one more time. But when officers asked him to go over the specifics of how he sustained the very precise injuries he had, Eddie started bumping on the details. As Eddie continued to trip over his words, one of the officers who had been present at the Janet Downing murder scene joined the police interview. Eddie continued to attempt to explain his injuries to more accurately describe the men who had attacked him, but his responses were really vague. The calm demeanor Eddie had displayed at this hospital started to melt away as he began contradicting himself. And by the end of the interview, Eddie's responses became even more frantic and muddled. It was then that one of the officers asked Eddie if he or any of the other neighborhood boys had been involved in Janet's murder, but he denied it completely. The police didn't know what to make of Eddie's story. And remember, they were in the middle of this chilling and bizarre evening. They had two different crime scenes. But regardless, they had no evidence directly implicating Eddie at this point in what happened on Boston. So Eddie agreed to provide the officers with his fingerprints, and then he left to go home with his dad. So everyone wakes up the next morning, which is Monday the 24th, and the reality of what happened really started to set in. The brutal murder of the single mom was not just a nightmare. Things in this neighborhood would be forever changed, and a dark cloud hung over Boston Street. And remember, Janet's killer was still walking free. Nobody knew who was responsible. The police continued to investigate. They spoke to Janet's children and their friends at length in an attempt to piece together Janet's final day. And here's what they learned. Early evening on Sunday, Janet Downing had gone to the grocery store and she'd returned from the store at about 6 p.m., When she arrived home, her twin sons, Ryan and Paul, were hanging out with Eddie Jr., Eddie's sister, Jeannie O'Brien. Their friends, Joey and Chris, and a handful of the other neighborhood kids were all sort of hanging out at this house, some inside and some outside. When Janet got home, the boys offered to help her unload the groceries from her car and bring them into the house. So after that was done and the grocery group put away, Janet laid down on the living room couch and fell asleep. The friends continued to hang at the house, and at one point, Eddie played Sega Genesis in the same room where Janet napped on the couch as a group of them were sort of sitting in the kitchen and making plans for that evening. After that, the crowd sort of dispersed while Janet remained asleep on the couch. Ryan, Joey, and Chris then left the house to go swimming at another friend's house. They invited Eddie, but Eddie declined to join them and said that he was going to hang out with another friend of theirs, a guy named Garvey Solomon. So around 8 p.m., Paul Downing and Jeannie O'Brien returned to the neighborhood to drop off Jeannie's car. Paul stopped by his house. And remember, Paul's Ryan's brother. So he stopped by his own house, 
where Janet lived, for a few minutes to grab a quick bite to eat. He said at that point, his mother was still asleep on the couch serenely. Paul then left again and went back to the O'Briens to get Jeannie. Eddie Jr. was there, sitting on the front porch. He was wearing dark shorts and a white t-shirt. Then Paul and Jeannie left to go to Revere Beach at 8.20 p.m. Then at around 9.20 that night, friends of Paul and Ryan's went to the Downing House to see if Ryan was home. They knocked on the window and called for Ryan, but there was no response, and the screen door of the home was closed. So the friends figured Ryan was probably just out and about, so they left. So it's between 9.20 and before 10 p.m. that we know Ryan returned to his house and found his mother's body. So this is the window in which the murder took place. The police pressure tested every aspect of the series of events. And then they learned something really interesting. Eddie had never actually gone to the home of his friend Garvey's, as he had claimed. So by now, it's really no surprise that the police are becoming suspicious of Eddie Jr. And for good reason. The gash on his arm didn't align with the story. He hadn't gone to his friend Garvey's house during the time of Janet's murder, as he originally claimed. And slowly, more stories reflecting odd behavior exhibited by Eddie started to make their way to police. Ryan Downing relayed a story to the police. He said that he had seen Eddie the day before his mother's murder. And they had a curious exchange. And at the time, it was odd, but Ryan didn't think much of it. But now, with his mother dead, he thought it was incredibly important to mention this conversation to the police. He told them that Saturday the 22nd, he was walking by Eddie's house when Eddie called down to him from his bedroom window before coming down to the front yard to speak with Ryan. And they kind of bullshitted a bit and talked about plans for the next day. Talked about, you know, maybe playing basketball in the morning. Then seemingly out of nowhere, Eddie asked Ryan if he ever wanted to hurt somebody. And Ryan quickly said no. Then Eddie reminded Ryan of a story from their childhood in which Ryan chased Eddie around a car after Eddie had made fun of Ryan for being held back a year in school. They joked around a bit about some of this stuff, but throughout this conversation, Eddie kept seriously trying to explain his desire to hurt someone. Ryan just kind of brushed it off after the conversation ended, never thinking it would end up being relevant. And although all this circumstantial evidence is really odd, there were still doubts about Eddie. He was 15 years old. He was described as this teddy bear. He was literally an altar boy and had been a paper boy. He was the grandson of a decorated local police chief, and this was his best friend's mother. He couldn't possibly have done this, could he? Those involved in this investigation were in a really, really tough spot. If they're going to arrest Eddie for the murder of his best friend's mom, they better be sure about it. And luckily for them, they were about to be. Evidence from the scene had been processed, and it was revealed that the bloody fingerprints found on the inside of the Downing's front door were a match to none other than Eddie O'Brien Jr. Additional fingerprints were also found in blood on a wooden post in the cellar of the Downing home. Not only that, but blood consistent with Eddie's 
and having a profile shared by approximately 6% of the Caucasian population was found in the front hallway of the Downing residence as well. Then there were the pants that Eddie was wearing on the night he claimed to have been injured during this alleged mugging. The blood on his pants turned out to be Janet's blood. To police, a picture started to emerge. They believed that Eddie O'Brien killed his best friend's mother while she was in the bathroom, which is why the water was still running when Ryan discovered his mother's body. After Eddie fled the scene, he then went to Union Square, where he feigned this mugging incident to explain those defensive injuries he sustained from Janet. A couple of days later, when Eddie was arrested for the crime, we were, I mean, talk about shock upon shock. We were even more shocked that it was somebody who had lived right next to us, let alone someone who lived across from us that got murdered, but somebody who lived next to us that perpetrated this crime. Lord knows what kind of thing could have happened. And it just made me realize that as a child that, you know, killers among us, like you have no idea who anybody is and what anybody can do. And there was nothing so scary to me. And I think that's where my fascination with true crime started because I just can't, and I still can't ever successfully get my head around what causes people to do such horrible things. Eddie Jr.'s arrest was not any cause for celebration, and it was not a relief to anyone in this community. The idea that Eddie could do this to Janet was enough to cause neighbors to gather in the streets and cry in each other's arms with grief. The Downings and the O'Briens, these two families, were like one and the same. Ryan's twin brother Paul was best friends with Eddie's sister. They even had gone to prom together the previous year. Everyone in each of these two families were extremely close to each other. So this was a huge, devastating loss to everyone. And, and obviously when it happened, we hadn't heard yet about the fascination he had with her. Later on, when we find out that it had been kind of a long-standing fascination and prior to murder, where I, I don't know. I don't know how you could premeditate something like this. Through the course of time that Eddie Jr. lived across the street from the Downings, was he becoming a budding psychosexual sadist who had become obsessed with the idea of killing his best friend's mom? Well, this would be a question that would tear this community apart. At 7.15 on July 25th, 1995, Eddie O'Brien Jr. was arrested and charged for the murder of his best friend's mother, Janet Downing. But we assure you, just because... There are cuffs on Eddie doesn't mean the story is over. In fact, it's far from the end. The neighborhood became divided. Some believe that Eddie O'Brien Jr. was a budding sexual thrill killer and others believed he was innocent. Everyone picked a side and everyone had an opinion. But people began to talk. And our first degree crystal observed proof of Eddie's rage and strength firsthand. And she wasn't the only one. It seemed like nearly everyone had a bizarre story involving Eddie Jr. Stories that not only reflected a disturbing pattern, but also glaring escalation. That some were aware of, but no one took seriously. So what exactly was going on inside Eddie O'Brien Jr.'s head all of these years? Well, the neighborhood was about to find out. I just can't even describe to you how, how, how much it changed me as a, as a child. I didn't feel like a child anymore after that.
All right. Well, huge thanks to Crystal Williams for being our first degree. And as far as the story is concerned, this is truly just the beginning. Crystal will be with us for next week for part two as well. So make sure you come back for the conclusion of the Janet Downing case. And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us at hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Lingletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group uh, by searching the first degree and the search bar. We're always pulling you for all of our killing time stuff. It's really fun and uh, stick around because we're going to kill sometime. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. That one felt right in my ear. It felt okay to me. Happy ear piercing day. (laughs) I want to get more piercings. Happy whole pillow day. Whole pillow, get one. They're great. Bye. Music and sound design for The First Degree is all by Jared Monaco. And shout out to our producer team, Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for today's episode includes court documents, the Boston Globe, the Associated Press, Somerville Times, the New York Times, South Coast Today, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source. All right. Well, welcome to yet another episode of Killing Time. For this episode, I thought that we would do like a little game of most likely to. And I gathered everybody's questions on the Facebook group. If you're not part of our Facebook group, I don't know what the hell you're doing with your life. You need to search the first degree and join because we're just all talking shit in there. But um, are you guys ready to play? Jared is also going to be playing. Hi. Hi, Jared. Hey, Jared. Can we hear him? Yep. He needs. He just needs to lean in a little bit more. But yeah. Hi, guys. There okay. you go. <laughs> All right. So are you guys ready? Yes. Ready. Okay. We'll start with who is most likely to get the whole group in trouble? <laughs> Alexis. I'm going to go with me, too. Like, yeah. yeah. Alec- <laughs> Alexis does have a tendency to get a little fiery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, after a few drinks. That's the thing. I'm so nice 99% of the time, but mm. I yeah. really lose my cool sometimes and will say really obscene things to people. Yeah. And I, I break honestly, the rules. You do break the rules. <laughs> I didn't realize I don't know if I had ever really seen this side of you until quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've been yelling tons of shit from my windows in Hollywood. Catch me at the wrong day. I'll just ream you from behind my moat wall thinking I'm safe. But then <laughs> then people know where I live and it's a terrible travesty. <laughs> I know this is a problem if you're like screaming at people from across the street because they know exactly where to find you. Yeah, I'm working on that. I haven't done it since 4th of July. <laughs> at, Jack, okay, I, at Jack's I, house. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I have to talk to you about that later. Anyways, okay. So next <laughs> next one. Who is most likely to stage dive during a rock concert? And I have my answer. And I think it would be Billy Jensen. Because do you remember what Billy did at your concert, Jared? <laughs> Which 
which thing? Do you remember that Billy did a keg stand? Oh, yeah, dude. It took like eight people. I saw it on Instagram. I'm like, is that eight people holding his long body upside down? Like, How do we hoist a seven foot? Yeah, seriously. No, they, I think they brought in a crane. Yeah. yeah. No, I would, I would do a stage. You know what? I've never staged dope before. I've been in many pits, but I've never staged dope before. But uh, I've never been on, on, I never rushed a stage before, actually, even though I've been to like three Morrissey shows. Okay. But uh, I just I, feel like I could see, I could just picture this so clearly of Billy just drinking too much and then being on that side stage and then somebody making like maybe Jared's like, yeah, Billy, do it. Billy, and then go up, jump at everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Just a jump and a dive. And then it takes 50 people to reach your entire body. So it's this <laughs> whole thing carrying him across the crowd. Yeah. Like the Lilliputians. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see it. I think it would be a All right. And y- yes, please. The vaccine needs to come fast. So then I, I tell you what. When we're back on live shows, I'm going to stage dive. <laughs> I cannot. And it's going to be at a main concert. Yeah, absolutely. Jared, we'll, we'll make it like a whole entire thing. We'll set up a whole lane for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So who is most likely to get under everybody's skin if we are all quarantined together for months? Mm. I'm going to go with me again. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or Billy. I mean, Billy's pretty annoying. Billy's pretty annoying. I'm trying to think of who would annoy me the most. I've lived with Alexis before, so and you've never Dude, annoyed me before. Jack, you and I get along shockingly well. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, it's really like I have to be going in a spiral that lasts weeks for Jack to be like, I've had enough. But like, it's so yep. rare. It's so rare, and yeah, probably Billy then because. You say shit like you know, you know what would really I'm to work out. I'm I had work to work out. out. No, no, be- because I'll be locked in my room the entire time, and then no. I'll come out and then make myself a peanut butter jelly sandwich and ask anybody if they want one. You guys will say no, ew, and then I'd go back into my room. That's <laughs> no. what it would be like to be in quarantine with me for two weeks. And then you would mention working out and how swollen <laughs> you've been getting, and then I'd be like, "This is enough." Is and then true. you'd be drunk falling down the stairs at like five p.m. <laughs> Okay, here is another one. Who is most likely to fall up the stairs? Billy. Fall up the stairs? Billy. Honestly, I'm way more likely to fall up the stairs than down the stairs. Is it just because your legs are too long for the stairs? There's steps? something about up the stairs, and I try to like, I can do this, you know, and I want to go up there fast enough, faster, that I will I will fall up the stairs, yeah. That and the alcohol consumption. There's something about that and the alcohol consumption that allows you to fall up the stairs. <laughs> okay I'm um, drink too. i'm not knocking you no listen we all i think nobody loves to drink more than the four of us in this little right. group so there's sure. no shaming involved there's just some people that get more obviously drunk than others <laughs> <laughs> right that's true 100 percent true yeah okay so who is most likely to Mm, adopt a strange animal I thought was interesting. I know the answer Alexa. to this one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I did do that with a rabbit from a homeless person. He gave me a rabbit and I had it for seven right. years. <laughs> Is that where you got that rabbit foot from? I never knew that. That's correct. Someone, some uh, man was like, if you don't buy it from me, I'm going to kill it and started swinging it around. I'm like, well, I guess I'm 
find myself a rabbit then. <laughs> and there I was. Oh, <laughs> my God. You loved that rabbit. He was so cute. So destructive, but so cute. Ate everything I loved. Well, then. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's the next In one? Jack? Okay. Next- Jack needs to be one. Jack needs to be picked for one. Oh, I just like pick these because I like me. I think of all you guys. Um, Why well, I, I need to do this one now. Most likely to be a lead singer uh, in a band, and I'm going to just jump right in again and say Billy Jensen. Billy. <laughs> no, it's Billy. Billy, your passion for We're karaoke still- alone. We've talked about this before, right, on the podcast of Billy's karaoke choices. They're so depressing. Yeah. So yeah, they're depressing, but they're uh, they're sad. <laughs> <laughs> when, we went, when we went to the when we went to the place in Koreatown, you guys and Billy picked that really sad song. We all just sat there with like our bottle of Kettle One, and we were just like, "Wow, okay." I think, by the way, I think that song might have been "Whiskey and You" by Chris Stapleton. Yeah, it sure <laughs> there was. is something so strange, so strange that you know karaoke is supposed to be a fun time like activity and like you do like jokey songs like I like to do ba what da ba or all star or you know like Eagle any I of those fun tonight. 90s jams yeah or like uh, Eve 6 Inside Out yeah yeah and then Billy comes on and then the mood <laughs> just Billy's dies there to, Billy's there to remind you that you have feelings yeah that's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah and yeah. by the way I take all star very seriously okay because he was living in a swamp and nobody liked him, and he was very, very goth. So, are you talking about Shrek? Shrek? I'm talking about Shrek. Yes. You know, Shrek didn't know. sing that song "All Star." <laughs> Shrek didn't sing "All Star." Wait, are you talking about the Shrek version of "All Star"? The guy kind of looks like Shrek. Yes, he oh is. Oh my god! <laughs> you can make anyways. Also, you really played a double bill with that guy. <laughs> Also, let's not forget that Billy and Jared one day are going to start their goth country band. Working on it. Working on it. Working on it as we speak. Because goth country really is a genre that I think needs to be birthed, but just hasn't been birthed yet. It's incredibly similar, you know? I mean, if you listen to Hank Williams and then you listen to Morrissey, they're singing the same songs just in different beats and, and different rhythms. So, yeah. It is absolutely true. Okay, here's the next question. Oh, yeah. Well, if Jared ever writes our song. Well, every time we try to work on it, we get drunk, and Jared's like, I can't work like this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've talked about this before. Alexis and I wrote a song in college. It's called Bitches in the Bathroom. We want to recreate it and, like, really release it into the world because it is actually a fantastic song. So we keep asking Jared (laughs) to, like, rewrite the music for it, and then he gets intimidated when we get so drunk. Because me and Jack, me and Jack get creative and want to work on it when we're drunk, and Jared's like starts sweating, and he's like, "I can't, I can't right now." <laughs> the logistics overwhelm me of trying to corral the both of you, and <laughs> we are like, we are like just- loud spider monkeys. Like when we're drunk, it's like trying to work with this would be fucking impossible. I, yeah. I don't blame you. I do remember when we were trying to do this. I go to Jared. I'm like, can you even play the guitar? <laughs> oh my God, we turn into mean spider <laughs> Are you even a musician? <laughs> like, are we going to be able to bounce back from this? <laughs> I really was like, wow, has Jared been faking it for the past 14 years? <laughs> Jared plays air guitar. <laughs> yeah, it's all fake. 
He might. I was like, well, he can't even he can't even play "Bitches in the Bathroom," which is not a hard song because I and by I, Alexis and I wrote it <laughs> at twenty one years old with no what musical talent on GarageBand, which I think you still do the podcast through. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you know, going through the times. Okay, who is? Mm, most likely to win the lottery but lose the tickets. That's Jack. Jack. That's, that's a Jack. That's me. Yep. Where you're like sort of underwhelmed. So you'd be like, yeah, you'd be like, yeah. You'd be excited, but then put it in your car and then you get your car washed and they throw it away or something. I still think, I mean, I just... I don't think I have the excitement within me to be that excited about anything. I think about that because I'm like, if I won the lottery, would I be that excited? And I hope I would be, but then I don't know. And then would the ticket just be gone forever? You're like me. When a good thing happens, you just sort of shrug and go like, (laughs) (laughs) you guys can't see what I'm doing, but it's like a shrug, like a... Neither one of us like to get too excited just in case something bad happens. Because That's it usually does. Because it will. Yeah, it will. Because it does. And then you don't you don't want to look like an idiot for being excited about something when it all crashes and burns like a month later. Mm-hmm. Exactly fucking right. That's why we're friends. Yep. It's just really sad. Um, okay. Who is most likely to have given themselves their own nickname? Like a BTK. Billy. A hundred percent Billy. Billy's like Billy the bulldozer. Billy the the Jensen crime solver. (laughs) All right. First of all, Billy the bulldozer. I do have a bulldozer tattoo on my back. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's not for me. It's for my son. But, um, and what was the one that you said? Billy Jensen. Billy the Jensen the crime solver. That's like a Navy (laughs) dinner (laughs) Billy the Jensen the crime solver. I like that. Honestly, I feel like, Billy, what's, is your website just billyjensen.com? Yeah. I feel like if it, if that was taken, you would have maybe given yourself like a little fun. Like Billy the Jensen. (laughs) Billy the Jensen. Billy the Jensen the crime solver. Yeah. You totally are the dude who gives himself a name because you like want the cool one. You think I wanted to be the tank? It's just it chooses you. There's a reason you only the, have cool the name, names. The name chooses you. Yeah. Yeah. Jared just says I don't want to be Jerry, but he you are That's right. Jared. You, yeah. you that is who you are now. Sometimes it just chooses you. The, yeah, Jerry, the, nickname chooses you. yeah, the nickname chooses you. The nickname chooses you. That's right. Yeah. Meanwhile, <laughs> at, at every main show, there's always going to be a group of like 10 women that are going to chant Jerry the entire time. It's already happening. I know. <laughs> it is. one uh, At one of their shows, John, their singer, he goes, hello, Jerry. Oh, geez. <laughs> like a hello, Newman. That was like yep. my favorite yeah, moment. I know it was. <laughs> If you Google, if you if you Google me, like the third thing that on the drop down bar on Google is Alexis the Tank. I'm like, all right, well, people are looking for. No, it <laughs> Do it, Google no, it. it isn't. Yeah, it is. It's why like top three. Because they why want people be googling your nickname. <laughs> I think they want to see what I look like because they're like, wow, the Tank. I wonder what sort of her physique is like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, there's probably some there's probably some Soviet tank that was built. <laughs> the Alexis. It was called the Alexis. Yeah, yeah. the Alexis. It's like the, you know when people name their ships, but they're naming their tanks mm-hmm. like something yeah, super exactly. sexy. Exactly. <laughs> well, on that note, all right. Well, we killed uh, 14 minutes and 22 seconds of time. Ooh. No one got a new nickname, Ooh. but maybe next time. Billy, maybe you think of time. what you want to be called between this week yeah. and next week. <laughs> We'll we'll let you we'll let you choose it. I'm sure it'll be really good <laughs> and not narcissistic or anything. You guys are so mean. <laughs> Time of death 1442. Beep, 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 motherfucker. <laughs>